Welcome to the Making Kids Count podcast brought to you by Kentucky Youth Advocates, where we sit down with policymakers, community leaders, and youth to discuss ideas to make Kentucky the best place to be young. Now here's your host, Terry Brooks. Uh, we are so glad to have all of you on uh, today, uh, whether you are a regular attendee or this is your uh, first ever joining. So uh, my guess is that if you're on this call, you know the uh, the vital importance of, of Kids Count. Uh, it's such a cornerstone, not just for folks on this call, but for lawmakers to make policy decisions. Uh, as you know, in a lot of ways, when the National Kids Count Report is released in June, it stands as this nation's report card on child well-being. Uh, we at KYA, I think, look at it in a couple ways. Uh, some of us, uh, not that I'm overly competitive, but but some of us look at uh, Kentucky versus other states. So how are we doing compared to Indiana or West Virginia or Tennessee, depending on what your zip code is? Uh, but I find it perhaps even more important to think about what we're doing on a longitudinal basis when we think about Kentucky versus Kentucky. Uh, I don't want to bury the lead that uh, Amy Swan is going to talk to you about, but uh, this year is a little bit unique because we really are going to pay attention to two sets of data. The, uh, the summative data was really pre-pandemic. And, and I don't want to discount that because that did give us trajectories and, and trend lines. And, and I want everyone to pay attention to that. Uh, the other data that Amy, I assume, is going to talk about is the pulse, uh, household pulse data, which is out of the Census Bureau and is much more contemporary, relevant, and current and captures where are we in the midst of pandemic world. So uh, there's two sets of data. Uh, let me just editorialize my two takeaways. And uh, I've been told that's all I can say, so then I'll turn it on over. But, but I, I have two takeaways that I want you to be thinking about. One is uh, there are consequences of data in the future. And, and I'm going to give you the one that caught my attention this time around. Uh, for the last several years, most of our indicators have shown improvement. We may not be where we want to be, but it's improvement. One data point that has been persistently in the category of getting worse is the percentage of children involved in preschool experiences. So that percentage of participation has been going down. Well, lo and behold, this year's data reflects a getting worse in fourth grade reading proficiency. Uh, for a long time, what we said was there were way too many fourth graders who couldn't meet minimal national proficiency standards, but we were going in the right direction. We now are going in the wrong direction. And while you never wanna draw a straight line comparison and correlation, I just wanna raise that up is, is it makes you wonder, doesn't it? If after several years, of that decline on how four-year-olds are doing, that by the time they become fourth graders, uh, it's caught up with us. 
So one thing that I want all of us to do is to look for that proverbial canary in the coal mine data point, that if there's problems in preschool today, there's going to be problems in elementary school in four years. So I want you to think hard about those correlates. The flip side of that is I'm not sure if there has ever been more uh, immediate policy opportunities on which we need you to act than this report suggests. That's at the federal and that's at the state level. And I'm assuming that my very thoughtful colleagues uh, are gonna talk about those, but I wanna just lift one up because I think that uh, to me, maybe the, the seminal uh, opportunity is around the uh, child tax credit. We know that <clears throat> as part of the whole pandemic uh, response that the child tax credit was expanded and flexed up. I can't emphasize the power of that one measure. It affects 93% of Kentucky's kids, over a million kids. That one idea, that one commitment alone has the potential to raise 143,000 Kentucky kids out of poverty. 143,000. That's all good news. There is a bad news caveat, and that is that what was approved was for one year. Our job, your job, all of our jobs is to make sure that your congressman and both senators here, that Kentucky's kids cannot afford a one-off. We've got to make it permanent. We've got to make it sustainable. In some ways, in fact, if it becomes a one-off, it's kind of a cruel joke. I mean, we will have lifted 143,000 kids out of poverty. And in 12 months, we're going to say, hey, hope you enjoyed it. Now back to normal. So, so we can't afford to let that happen. And, and let me just add on just that one policy. The other opportunity is to talk to your state senator and your state representative and say to them, hey, this bipartisan idea, not Democrat, not Republican, not liberal, not conservative, not rural, not urban, this common ground idea in Washington, how about baking that in the Kentucky budget. Let's accelerate that idea. Let's deepen that idea. If the DC idea lifts 143,000 kids out, wonder how many more kids would be lifted out even to a better place if we had a state version of that. Now, that's just one example. So that's my uh, focus. If, if I were to say the big policy takeaway, Man, I, I am really paying attention to that one. My hope for each of you, because I want to be realistic, you probably cannot leave this Zoom cast with 17 uh, requests. I'd like for you to, but that's probably unrealistic. What I hope you do is listen to Amy's data presentation and my colleagues' policy uh, presentations and Pick a couple ideas. You're, you know, it, it may be the child tax credit resonates with you. Maybe you're going to be more drawn to 
food security issues or trauma-informed care support ideas, all of which are absolutely essential. So listen to ideas, decide which one touches both your head and your heart. And then I have a feeling that at the end of this call and or in related material, you are gonna get sort of a, here's how to take action. So I, I wanna emphasize to you that, that the, the bulk of today is kind of talk at you. And it, it probably is pretty deep, data rich, and may not be confused with a sitcom, okay? So it's, it's probably a pretty intellectually rigorous discussion. That's really important. But folks, if you don't act on what you hear today, we have all just wasted 60 minutes. So the whole purpose of today's uh, Zoom call is to set you up to respond as a voice for kids with an actionable ask. That's your homework. I know it's summer, but we're all in summer school. So everybody's going to have homework at the end of this call, uh, Zoom call, and you're going to have plenty to choose from. It's not KYA or me that's counting on it. It's Kentucky's kids counting on you to take this data and make it actionable for elected leaders, whether they're in Frankfurt or Washington. So thanks for being with us today. Make sure that we actually do ensure that kids count. Ms. Swan, take it away. Yeah, so this is the 32nd edition of the Annie Casey Foundation's uh, National Kids Count Data Book. And it describes um, how children across the United States were faring before and during the pandemic alongside data that hints at the pace of our recovery. And as Terry mentioned, there are really two sets of data that we're gonna be discussing today. One is that uh, annual um, longstanding Kids Count Index of child well-being that's made up of 16 key indicators across four domains of child well-being. And the Casey Foundation uses that to rank each state on overall child well-being and for each of those four domains. And as Terry said, um, the latest data for this index is from 2019, pre-pandemic. Um, they're comparing that data to a baseline of 2010. And so because we know that a whole lot has happened since 2010, it's really important for us to figure out how kids and families have been impacted by this pandemic, this once-in-a-century event. Um, we're also looking at, as Terry said, the U.S. Census Bureau's Household Poll Survey. And the poll survey is really the only source of robust national and state data related to the pandemic. The Census Bureau was able to get this experimental survey up and running pretty quickly. Um, so it actually uh, began surveying households across the nation in April 2020. It's still ongoing, and we have reason to believe they'll keep it going through at least the end of this year. And the book compares um, 2020, which obviously April through December, to um, the results that came out covering March of 2021. Um, for the second year in a row, Kentucky ranks 37th in the nation for overall child well-being. And here we're looking at the economic well-being domain that's in the book for uh, Kentucky. And so you see that we rank 40th uh, in the US based on these four indicators. 
And I'm going to talk about those in just a second. But I want to first back up and say that this is a really good example, this data, of how even if your state is making progress on all four indicators in the domain that the Casey Foundation looks at, you can still have a very low ranking among states. And, and that's the case here. <laughs> um, you know, only 10 states are doing uh, worse than us in this domain. And that's simply because other states are obviously making progress at a faster rate than we have been. Um, so though each of these indicators improved between 2010 and 2019, the 2019 data shows that we still have more than one in every five children living in poverty. And for some context, because a lot of times people are shocked at kind of just how uh, little money <laughs> our federal poverty level is. In 2019, um, poverty for a family of two adults and two kids meant an annual income below just about $26,000. So um, we've got, like I said, one in every five, actually more than one in every five in poverty. We also have almost one third of all children and families having no parent with full-time year-round employment, uh, though parents may certainly be working multiple part-time or seasonal jobs. We also have nearly a quarter of children in homes that are having to spend more than 30% of their pre-tax monthly income on housing costs. Um, so that could be rent and mortgage as well as associated utilities. Um, and that 30% or more of income going towards housing is considered by uh, HUD to be burdensome and unsustainable. Um, and then some good news is that we have less than 10% of teens ages 16 to 19 who are neither in school or working. Um, this is a situation commonly referred to as disconnected youth or opportunity youth for the more strengths-based view of it. Um, there are some highlights that you're not gonna find in the data book that I wanted to share with you, um, including the fact that Kentucky is in the bottom 10 states for children living in poverty and for children in families in which no parent has that full-time year-round employment. Um, but we have a lower, meaning better rate than the South as a whole and the nation for children living in housing households with a high housing cost burden. Um, I wanna talk about some racial disparities that we've seen in the data. So Black and Hispanic communities have faced historical and ongoing discrimination in housing, employment, and financial services. And we know that this discrimination has compounded across generations. It's resulted in many families having less wealth and assets and being more racially and economically segregated. And as a result of that, we see substantially higher child poverty rates for Black, Latinx, um, and multiracial children compared to their non-Hispanic white peers. So for example, um, child poverty rate in 2019 for Kentucky for multiracial children was 33%, one third of all multiracial children. It was 32% for Black children and 30% for Latinx children. And that's compared to a rate of 19% for their non-Hispanic white peers. Now, some good news um, on the race equity front is that in Kentucky, Black teens were half as likely at 4% as white teens were at 8% to be disconnected from both school and employment. Um, but we need to keep our eye on this because this has not been a consistent trend 
over the years. Hopefully it, it is the start though of a positive trend. Uh, in education, Kentucky now ranks 30th. While the state saw slight improvement between 2009 and 2019 in the percent of eighth graders proficient in math, we still have close to three quarters not proficient in that subject area. We also have a majority, 65% of fourth graders not proficient in reading. And these proficiency scores, I should point out, are from the National Assessment of Educational Progress, um, which has a higher standard than the K-PREP testing that's used by Kentucky. So just to clear up any confusion there, um, I think a lot of advocates would argue that the, the National Assessment of Educational Progress um, is more of a gold standard for testing proficiency, and that it's therefore really important to, to pay close attention to these scores, um, maybe even more so than the K-PREP ones. Kentucky's doing very well on high schoolers um, graduating within four years of entering high school with only 9% not graduating on time. Um, but we you know, have to think about, are we graduating students um, insufficiently prepared? if we have such poor proficiency scores. Um, as Terry mentioned, we are moving in the wrong direction on getting young children enrolled in public and private preschool and kindergarten programs uh, with six in every 10 three to four year olds not participating in such schooling. Kentucky's in the bottom 10 states for children ages three to four not attending uh, one of those preschool program types. Um, we also have only two states that have a lower rate of high school students not graduating on time. So again, we're actually uh, setting the bar nationally uh, in a positive way for that. But I want to point out that this success should not overshadow consistent racial disparities that we must address. So, um, for example, um, high school graduation rates for Black students in Kentucky were um, 17% not graduating on time. Latinx students, 16% not graduating on time, compared to non-Hispanic whites at 8%. So you'll see that the um, not graduating on time, which is a weird way to word it, but those rates were um, for Black and Latinx students were double what they were for their white peers. Um, Kentucky's probably an editorial, but uh, what I would say are contemptible <laughs> outcomes in reading and math proficiency are hitting Black and Latinx students the hardest. So while all racial and ethnic groups have pretty dismal rates, at least three in every four Black and Latinx students um, have not achieved proficiency in those subjects, according to that 2019 National Assessment of Educational Progress. So clearly, um, the status quo has not been working, and I would argue calls for um, an education revolution. Kentucky now ranks 35th in health, and with the exception of childhood obesity, uh, which has remained at 37% over the past few years, um, the other key indicators have improved since 2010. The greatest gains have been in children having health insurance, so we now have only 4% of children uninsured in Kentucky. Um, again, that was pre-pandemic. Um, also notable, uh, Kentucky saw a slight improvement in its rate of low weight births, while the national average slightly worsened. 
Kentucky is in the bottom five states for children and teens who are overweight or obese. And though body mass index is not always a perfect measure of whether someone is overweight, according to the National Survey of Children's Health, only two states had higher rates than Kentucky. Again, this is for youth ages 10 to 17, and, and it's defined as having a body mass index at or above the 85th percentile. The, I mentioned that the rate of children without health insurance um, has significantly improved. It fell by 43% from 2010 to 2019. Um, that can largely be attributed to expansions of public coverage and Affordable Care Act provisions to make health coverage more affordable for adults. We know the research shows that children are more likely to be covered when their parents are. Um, however, where we now need to focus our efforts is on enrolling Latinx children in coverage as their uninsured rate is more than double that of their non-Hispanic peers. Um, also of note, while the majority of child and teen deaths um, were preventable, um, i.e. injury related, the proportion of injury related death due to a violent cause of death have been increasing over the years. In 2019, there were 39 youth who died of suicide and 39 youth who died due to homicide. Um, I'm sure any child advocate would argue one death is one too many. And so we certainly need um, to take steps to address violence and mental health concerns. Uh, the death rate for black youth was 55 per 100,000 ages one to 19. That was almost double the white rate of 26 per 100,000. And unfortunately, we do not have detailed enough data disaggregated by race to kind of get at the causes of that disparity, but it's something that we certainly want to look into. Uh, lastly, Kentucky ranks 43rd for family and community context. Um, this is a very low ranking despite, as you can see, three of the four indicators moving in the right direction. Again, an indication that other states are progressing faster. Kentucky had a statistically insignificant increase from 35 to 36% in children living in single parent families, but the teen birth rate fell by 46% between 2010 and 2019. And I wanna point out that though there is nothing inherently negative about single parent families, Kids Count tracks that measure because children growing up in single parent families typically have access to fewer economic resources and valuable time with adults than children in two-parent families in which child-raising responsibilities can be shared. 11% um, of kids uh, were living in families where the head of household next a high school diploma. That's actually a slightly better rate than the national average, which is great. However, Kentucky has a high rate at 15% of children living in areas of concentrated poverty. And what that is, um, the the operationalized definition of that is children living in census tracts or quote neighborhoods where 30% of more of all residents were living in poverty. Only three states have higher rates of children living in areas of concentrated poverty than Kentucky. Um, also only five states have higher teen birth rates than Kentucky. Um, there are both historic and current contributing factors to the racial and ethnic disparities among children living in high poverty areas. This ranges from past redlining practices 
discriminatory financial institutions, and present-day zoning, development, and transportation plans, among a number of other structural and systemic barriers. Um, to give you an example of the disparities that we see in this, the rate for Black children in Kentucky was 32%, so almost one in every three living in a high-poverty area. For Latinx children, it was 20%, one in every five. Uh, multiracial children, 19% compared to 12% for non-Hispanic white children. Um, as we wrap up, I wanted to share that household pulse survey data for Kentucky that uh, Terry mentioned. While the survey collects much more info from households, we're going to focus here on just four indicators that have particular relevance to child and family well-being. Um, as you can see, the good news is that the numbers are moving in the right direction as pandemic recovery efforts start to ramp up. Uh, though we would certainly argue that the March 2021 results show that we as a nation and as a state still have much to do to ensure families have their basic needs met and to address the widespread impacts that we know have happened on uh, individual and families' mental health, um, which in turn can place families at increased risk of substance abuse and child maltreatment. Um, and Kentucky already has had for three consecutive years the highest rate in the nation of child victims of abuse and neglect. So from 2020 to March of 2021, the percent of adults living with a minor child who said they felt down, depressed, or hopeless fell from 26% to 22%. The percent of adults living with children in which the adults lacked health insurance fell from 8% to 5%. Um, I think this is an example of how an administrative response during a crisis, such as reopening and promoting Medicaid enrollment, can certainly address the ripple effects of a surge in unemployment. The percent of households with children who sometimes or often did not have enough food to eat has slightly improved from 15% to 13%. And the percent of households with children who had little to no confidence in their ability to pay next month's rent or mortgage payment has decreased from 20% to 15%. I'm now gonna pass the mic to KOA's policy team. Uh, they're going to share a handful of recommendations on what can be done to ensure Kentucky gets better marks on this kids cap report card in the next five, 10, and 20 years from now. The heck, I'm gonna point it over to you. All right. Hi, everyone. Mehet Kalra here with Kentucky Youth Advocates. So what Amy just showed us is the data sets, um, what the data sets just showed us and Amy just discussed is we still need continuous, bold action that prioritizes equitable solutions. The pandemic isn't over and the choices ahead will determine whether recovery can really be sustained. Um, so in a few moments, you'll hear from um, my colleagues talking about state and federal solutions as child advocates that you could take on um, by sector and issue arena. So I'm going to first start talking about reducing child poverty. Um, among the provisions in the Federal American Rescue Plan of 2021, um, is, which provided pandemic relief, is an expanded version of a child tax credit. As Terry alluded to, approximately 1.1 Kentucky children and their families will be eligible for a one-year um, expanded tax credit. And this includes low-income families who have not historically made enough 
or had enough income um, that will be eligible. And um, this tax credit, expanded tax credit, will truly be a game changer for millions of children as it's a way to help families with the basics, something that we know that they need, especially at this moment. Um, the expanded tax credit program will begin starting July 15th and families will be um, families with children can anticipate receiving checks from the IRS at that point. So for every child ages zero to five, families can receive up to $300 a month, which is a total credit of $3,600. And for every child ages six to 17 living in a household, um, families can receive $250 a month, which is a total of $3,000. Um, and families do not need any earnings to qualify. So as policymakers begin to thinking about investments for children, families, and communities, we must ensure equitable, equitable and expansion recovery includes prioritizing communities of color hardest hit with the pandemic. So one step is Congress should make the expansion of the child tax credit permanent. We know this is a um, bipartisan policy, so lawmakers should find Common, um, this common sense to ensure the largest ever anticipated one-year drop in child poverty is not followed by a surge. Additionally, Kentucky lawmakers can build upon that effort by enacting a state-level refundable earned income tax credit. This is an initiative that is a proven track record of helping families meet the basic needs of their children. It also reduces reliance on government supports and improving um, child well-being as well. Both of these efforts are critical in eliminating structural inequities in the tax code, especially as more than half of the Black children have historically been ineligible for a full child tax credit because their household incomes were too low, while only 23% of white children face this barrier. So now I'm gonna turn it over to Patricia to talk about access to high quality childcare. Hi everyone. Um, so I'm gonna talk about one solution, um, you know, notably uh, Terry mentioned it and then Amy followed up that our kids count data shows that Kentucky is moving in the wrong direction on three and four year olds enrolled in school. Um, and we know that many children, if they're lucky in Kentucky, um, are able to attend preschool through a licensed child care center. Um, and that has the benefit of it helps them get ready for kindergarten. We know there's data that shows that the benefits there, but it also allows their parents to work. Um, and we know all of us that pandemic has truly shown that without childcare, our families, our communities, and the economy cannot successfully function. Um, it truly is basic infrastructure, but one that has seen very little public investment. Um, and that's been laid bare by this pandemic. Um, Pre-pandemic, 50% of Kentuckians lived in a childcare desert, which means they had limited to no access to licensed childcare. Um, we also know that many parents, particularly mothers, left the workforce due to lack of childcare options. And many times affordability of childcare options, of, of course, impacts that decision. Um, so this limited infrastructure that we had was greatly threatened by the pandemic as childcare providers struggled to keep their businesses afloat. Um, fortunately, uh, this, with the help of many of 
of you today on this call and advocate statewide, childcare was included in all three relief packages that were passed by Congress, um, most re recently with the American Rescue Plan. Um, and we're really grateful to Senator Mitch McConnell, Chairman Yarmouth, and our other representatives in DC for championing childcare. Um, and again, to many of you who helped advocate and make that happen. Um, in addition, state legislators included funding in the most recent state budget to increase reimbursement rates for providers who participate in the child care assistance program, um, which is critical to ensure access to care for low-income children. So the good news is this $2 a day per child increase goes into effect next Thursday, um, and it's a step in the right direction. Um, but uh, as the unfortunate news is that we were already pretty bad off beforehand. So looking ahead, um, Kentucky needs to use these uh, federal funds to not only continue to stabilize the child care sector, but to um, use this as an opportunity to reimagine and move toward a better system that truly meets the needs of ch children, parents, and employers. Um, and so um, from our perspective, this must include measures to increase the compensation of early care educators, um, especially as women of color make up a large percentage of the early childhood workforce, and they are shouldering the weight of this underinvestment. Um, we also need to rethink how we pay our providers. Um, we should be thinking more about basing the rates that we reimburse them on the cost of providing care um, and continue to pay based on enrollment rather than attendance, which can help them um, sustain their businesses. Um, and we also need to continue to um, increase the eligibility level for childcare assistance and reduce or even ideally eliminate co-pays for our um, most low-income parents so that more Kentucky families can access this much-needed support. Um, and so the, the bottom line is that the status quo for childcare uh, pre-pandemic was, was completely insufficient. And so, you know, we have this opportunity at hand now with federal funds. We need to continue to increase state funding um, and we need to rethink the way that we um, uh, fund childcare, support childcare so, and build it back better so that it truly works for everyone in Kentucky. Um, and now I'm going to turn it over to my colleague, Kesh Kami-Price, to talk about school-based mental health supports. Thank you, Patricia. Good morning, everyone. Um, so uh, we really need to think about the fact that we have all picked up and carried on through dual pandemics. Um, however, we have to address the fact that our kids, our families, our educators, administrators are all carrying a lot of trauma, a lot of um, things that haven't been processed or unpacked yet. And so when they come to school in August, um, ready to learn, um, and I'm saying that in quote air quotes, ready to learn, um, we really have to think about how, what, what measures need to be in place to ensure that they're actually ready to learn that they have the supports so that they are mentally available um, to process and take in new information. Um, that Kentucky can build upon the School Safety and Resilience Act of 2019 uh, by using American Rescue Plan dollars allocated for K-12 schools as a seed investment to hire school-based health providers to ensure that that ratio of one to 250 um, 
students. One school-based mental health provider to 250 students is adhered to, and that's the recommendation from the American School Counselors Association. Um, We are far from that in many of our school districts. And um, to be honest, if we are talking about this in an equitable fashion, we wouldn't be talking about one to 250 for every school district. There would be an emphasis to ensure that the schools that needed more support were able to get that support um, based on many of the factors that we've talked about within this report. Um, Family income level, um, race-based trauma that may be experienced at the schools, um, students with special needs, uh, a lot of factors that are LGBTQ plus population. So if we are thinking about how these funds are going to be utilized, we really need to talk about that strategic implementation uh, and carry out of the School Safety and Resilience Act. And if you remember or recall, there's also an element around um, school resource officers within that act. So um, to emphasize more of the mental health supports and to um, diminish the policing Um, of schools is key priority. Um, $123 billion was allocated for K-12 schools in the American Rescue Plan. And um, KDE, the Kentucky Department of Education, will receive over $3.2 billion in funding through the Elementary and Secondary Emergency Education Relief, which is the ESSER fund, um, the majority of which has already been received. And each school district has to um, submit their plan on how they plan on allocating those ESSER funds by July 31st, and they are required to receive community feedback. So um, one of the recommendations is for people to weigh in on that. Um, That's not a lot of time. And while everybody is um, enjoying the break, um, we have to start thinking about preparing a better um, environment for our kids when they return. Um, And I am going to take a moment just to drill down on the fact that our kids did not have um, what they needed pre-pandemic, right? We know this. And to pretend that we're just going to carry on and not address these issues, it's criminal. So we have to make sure that we are holding people um, to the reality of where we are, where we've been, and where we need to go. Um, I am going to now uh, pass it over to Alicia to talk about child feeding programs. Thanks, Kish. So I'm Alicia Watley with KYA. Um, And as Amy shared um, earlier during the data presentation, we know that food security um, really was a concern for many Kentuckians before the pandemic. And it continued to be a major stressor over the last year, um, as many households with children were reporting sometimes or often not having enough food to eat. Um, We also know that there were programs that were successful during the pandemic in mitigating these issues, um, such as the Pandemic EBT program, which um, was able to connect students and their families with the critical grocery money that they needed um, while their students were really learning virtually throughout the pandemic. Um, So we really need to be building on the success of that program. Um, And one way to do that is through the Summer EBT program. Um, And this has been approved temporarily through the American Rescue Plan Um, for this summer, the summer of 2021, but it should really be made permanent. Um, 
And this is just another opportunity for eligible students to receive um, the same kind of grocery money that they would during the school year on that EBT card in the summer when they're not in school as well, because we know they still need um, access to healthy meals during the summer. Um, and also we know that in pilots of that summer EBT program around the country, um, child hunger was reduced by up to 30% in areas that implemented those pilots. So right now, Congress has the opportunity to act on several pieces of federal legislation um, that would ensure kids aren't hungry during the summer. So one of those is the Hunger Free Summer for Kids Act, and that's actually uh, co-sponsored by Senator McConnell. Um, in addition, there are a lot of efforts going on right now around the child nutrition reauthorization, which is a larger package that would include several child feeding programs and also address that um, summer EBT option. And then we also know that through the American Families Plan, there are proposals in place for that as well. Um, in addition, as children are transitioning back to in-person learning this fall, we know that um, our Kentucky elected leaders have an opportunity to really enact a policy that would allow students a short amount of their instructional time um, at the beginning of the school day to eat breakfast in their classroom. Um, and this is a change that would really boost efforts to ensure children can concentrate and um, make sure that they are able to learn during the school day and are not hungry. So um, those are just a few opportunities for nutrition assistance for families and children, both during the summer and during the school year. Um, and with that, I would think I'll pass it back to Mahek to talk a little bit more about paid family leave. Thanks, Alicia. Um, so a robust body of research demonstrates that access to paid family leave contributes to a stronger health outcomes for children and parents, also increases financial family stability, and it's a greater economic equity. Positive impacts associated with paid family leave include fewer low birth babies, fewer infant deaths, um, higher rates of breastfeeding, as well as long-term achievement and fewer behavioral challenges for kids. For parents, it contributes to a longer lifespan and improved mental health, as well as a greater income consistency for families and relief from compounding effects of racial disparities and access to wealth and quality health care. For our employers, it boosts employee morale, productivity, and contributes to greater work um, satisfaction and also reduces turnover. So Kentucky should allow state employees to access 12 weeks of paid family leave after the birth or adoption of a child. And this is the first step that a measure could take um, that could provide as really a model. Um, this, this can be a model for the private sector, really. Um, this would allow families to be there for the important first steps of their children's lives while currently knowing their employment is secure. Currently, Black and Hispanic workers are less likely to have access to paid family leave than their white workers. Um, and also improving access to paid family leave would boost family and economic stabilities for all eligible families. And now I'm gonna turn it over to Shannon. Thanks, Mahak. So I'm going to focus um, on the child welfare continuum, but um, two items in particular, um, child abuse prevention and youth aging out of care. Um, as my colleagues have discussed, our parents dealing with a dual pandemic um, saw a lot of stress over the last year and a lack of adequate childcare, a lack of, uh, or a, a unstable employment and um, the stress that exacerbated um, already, you know, uh, present mental health issues and substance use issues created um, 
a lot of uh, a lot of issues for our parents and caregivers across the state of Kentucky. What we saw was over one in four or 26 percent of Kentucky adults living in households with children felt down, depressed, or hopeless in 2020, with only a slight improvement of 22% by uh, March of 2021. And what we saw um, in response to the stressors that were brought on to parents or to parents and caregivers um, that the, the federal government prioritized was the American Rescue Plan Act allocated $150 million to states for the maternal infant early childhood home visiting program. Um, and typically in Kentucky, we see that as the HANDS program, as our, um, as our voluntary um, home visiting program. We also saw an increase in funding for the CBCAP or the Community-Based Child Abuse Prevention uh, program, um, which was uh, which DCBS can use to promote access to and create supportive environments for parents and caregivers, including parent resources, support programs, coordination of or referral to substance use treatment and intimate partner violence services. We also saw the American Rescue Plan Act include $350 million in emergency funding through the Child Abuse Prevention and Treatment Act, or CAPTA, 100 million of which can be used for recruitment and retention of caseworkers, interagency communication and processing, investigating um, child abuse and neglect reports. So I think we in Kentucky have an opportunity to continue working to create access to more primary prevention supports like home visiting programs and create additional supports for parents struggling before they even come to the attention of DCBS. I hope to see um, the uh, Department for Community-Based Services also work to retain our high-quality workers by reducing caseloads and creating more efficiencies in the system with those federal dollars. What we also saw um, young people especially um, be impacted by the pandemic with the loss of jobs, um, loss of kind of normalcy in their lives, accessing education, um, and losing employment. And what we saw... Um, the federal government's response to that, especially for youth aging out of foster care, um, they included an additional $400 million through the Chafee uh, funds, which 50 million of which reserved for the education and training vouchers. They increased the eligibility um, for access to that assistance to the age of 27 through 2021. And um, they waived the post-secondary education or training program requirement um, if a young person was in, unable to complete it due to COVID-19. It also prohibited states from requiring a young person to leave foster care solely due to their age and allowed young people to re-enter care during COVID-19. And all of this is in effect until October 1st of 2021. Kentucky um, take this opportunity to really revamp the way that we serve young people and, uh, and those transitioning from care by ensuring our foster care alumni are part of the decision-making process and have provided opportunities to help spread the word about accessible supports, utilizing those young people to talk to other young people who are in similar situations to make sure that they're accessing those supports. And then also ensuring that there is a warm handoff to services as young people transition from residential care to independent living or from foster care to um, post-secondary education. So we are looking for, for uh, looking for we should prioritize and expand primary prevention and family preservation programming, accessing those federal funds and uh, on the state level, seeing an increased investment in uh, family preservation programming and strong safety net supports for young people transitioning from care.
with that, I will transition to my colleague, Carly Mosby-Smith. Thanks, Shannon. Um, and, and thanks again to uh, the folks on the call that um, uh, presented today. Um, thanks to Amy for providing us with, um, you know, a kids count data download um, specific to Kentucky and, and just for the rest of the team for sharing those tangible solutions um, that can help address the challenges that, you know, kids and families in Kentucky face and those challenges that we see reflected um, in the Kentucky kids count data. Um, we also want to thank Aetna Better Health of Kentucky for their support of today's Advocate Virtual Forum. Um, looking ahead uh, to some upcoming forums, uh, so next week we'll be discussing updates um, relating to child nutrition and access to food, um, including that summer EBT um, that Alicia talked about, um, federal investments, um, outreach to families, and more. Um, so we'll have a representative um, from the Kentucky Cabinet for Health and Family Services um, as a panelist, um, along with Karina Cash um, from Feeding Kentucky. Um, and then the following week, we will be taking a break um, after the holiday. Um, so as always, uh, the follow-up email will include a recording of today's forum, along with some of the resources that we've shared and, and are being shared in the chat um, and, and some of those questions. Um, and a link to sign up for next week's uh, forum as well. Um, so with that, um, I just want to thank everybody for joining us today um, and hope you all have a great rest of your day. Thank you for listening to the Making Kids Count podcast with Terry Brooks. For more information and to listen to more episodes, visit kyyouth.org slash podcast. Kentucky Youth Advocates is a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization who doesn't accept government money so that we can remain truly independent. To support this podcast and our mission as the independent voice for Kentucky kids, please consider making a gift at kyyouth.org slash donate.